Well, welcome to another edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. It is Wednesday, and you know what that means. It is Everyone Wednesday here at the Bottom Line Show. We are going to be giving away a copy of a really great book that will kind of tie the whole theme of this hour together. But in the meantime, you know the number, 800-227-5278. If you don't want to wait, you can go ahead and just dial it up right now. 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the Bottom Line Show. And uh, today on the program, we're going to talk about your prayer life, your emotional health, your spiritual health, and what it means to cry out to the Lord. I've had so many friends recently, and thank you so much for your prayers for my buddy Sean Tabbitt and his wife Lynette, who going through, Lynette's just going through a very challenging season with a brain mass, and uh, you've been so gracious to pray for them and that family. And then I also think of a noted a theologian, apologist, Bible explainer, if you will, by the name of Chad Bird who I have quoted often on this program, and I think I've lifted something from Chad's writings in just about every sermon I've preached in the past five years. Uh, Chad's oldest son uh, went to be with the Lord. Uh, he was in Annapolis. Uh, he just, uh, Luke, was a 21-year-old midshipman, was on a uh, cross-cultural exchange thing in Chile and was out hiking with a friend and lost his footing by a waterfall and you know, all the great potential that's there and just kind of grieving along with what Chad is going through and there are a lot of you know people who are going through some hurting, challenging times right now. There's no question about it. And uh, Lisa and I spend a lot of time on our knees every day uh, with the Lord and just you know praying throughout the day for our friends. And I know you do too. And um, I think it's uh, you know it's part and parcel with who we are as Christians. And uh, I, I want to take some time this hour to spend some time in prayer as we wrap up the hour. Uh, but then also there, let's face it, there have been some huge challenges that our culture has faced over the years and especially over the past four or five, maybe over the past 10. And uh, I wanted to, (laughs) you can't look at what's happening in the culture in terms of government stepping up involvement and, you know, actual crises becoming blown out of proportion. And I mean, you can look at the medical challenges that we as a nation and we as a world have faced and take a look at what's happening and then what is being done with them. Um, I think it'd be safe to say, and if you work for a pharmaceutical company, I don't mean this in any disrespect to you. Uh, if you're in the pharmacy industry, if you're in the medical practicing industry, I have friends who work in, uh, in counseling and therapy, and they were amazed to find the statistic that 90% of people in the psychiatric community, psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, things like that, um, first order of business is to try to prescribe something to someone rather than to talk with them. And largely it's because caseloads are heavy. You know, if you're doing if you're doing the heavy lifting with counseling, um, those 45-minute sessions go by really quickly. And after how many months are you still talking about the same things? And sometimes it's just easier to say, it looks like you're depressed. I'm going to recommend an antidepressant. You know, I mean, I, I, I get that. Um, I, every time you watch a medical doctor, I think of my uh, dear friend, Dr. John Chang, who's now with the Lord, died very heroically, as you recall, uh, back in May on, was it Mother's Day? It was Sunday after Mother's Day. Um, he and his mom were at an event at her, his mom and dad's church for a visiting former pastor who was there, and a crazed gunman came in and opened fire, and Dr. Chang was the one who ran, took three bullets from this guy, disarmed him. The rest of the congregation came and you know, pounced on him, and he's now in custody and facing murder charges. But I remember um, you know, thinking about the, uh, uh, you know, that, that whole scenario and how you know, the, the, the rise of evil in our culture has kind of left us feeling somewhat unsettled. You know, and, and you pray for, for comfort. I, I, I'll never forget that moment sitting here in the studio. It was 20 minutes to three. 
Pacific time on Monday, the 16th of May, and um, and realizing that when they found out there was one person who was killed and then they identified him and I saw his picture and went, oh my gosh, I know him. You know, that those things start to pile up and they start to add up. And it takes a toll on people in the way that they interact with others in the culture. I get it. And it, it you, you see it from the most pedantic. You know, you're in line at the supermarket, someone cuts you off or you're walking up and down the aisle and they, they, they push their cart in front of yours just carelessly because they're so preoccupied with their own stuff. And sometimes they're just kind of lost in their own world and they can't get out of their own way. And other times they're in there going, hey, I want to get the, the frosted flakes and you're in, you're, you're blocking my path, you know. And, and I, that, <laughs> that you have to be a lot more gracious in situations like that. Um, you're behind the wheel or you're in line somewhere else. You're at the movie theater. The other day I went to go pick up my car at the dealership. I was having just regular maintenance and I got there at the same time as some other guy and he walked up to the, the desk, the check-in desk before I did and then he started to walk in and I realized that he didn't quite know where to go and I did and as I got there, I got to the main pickup counter like two steps ahead of this guy and I felt kind of bad. I'm like, wait, he was actually here first. You know, but by the time the woman said, you know, may I help you with your name? It was kind of too late. But I, I felt bad because I thought, I wonder if he thinks I'm that pushy guy. Now, a happy ending to the story. Um, he noticed the uh, sticker on the back of my wife's vehicle representing where she has been uh, uh, a student for quite some time, continuing education and things like that. He goes, oh, hey, I know that. We had a nice chat and it was all very good. Have a blessed weekend, that type of stuff. But still, you know, I mean, those are the types of things that these days seem to come to blows. And as a Christian, as a pastor, as an American, I have to wonder if maybe, just maybe, we're not doing ourselves any favors by being as quick to voice our discontent. You know, it seems like more and more people are a lot more brazen and a lot more out there, if you will, with talking about how much they don't like what's going on. Well, there's a new scientific study that's just out. Uh, we, we we're putting the link up at thebottomlineshow.com. This is not a faith-based study, as necessarily I you know can <laughs> can determine. But basically, uh, the scientific study now says that negativity and expressing negative reinforcement of thoughts, in other words, complaining, basically reinforces the fact that you develop a habit of complaining by virtue of complaining. Uh, <laughs> there are three different types of complainers that are identified in the study. The first is the venter. That person has got to vent everything. The person's always displeased, doesn't welcome a solution to make it better, just got to get it off my chest. And then there's the person who's the chronic complainer. Now, the chronic complainer, uh, their, their definition is someone who ruminates instead of feeling a release after complaining. Uh, they then complain because they realize that the complaining makes it worse and so it causes more anxiety. So they're not doing this as some kind of physical release to feel better. They do it and they immediately feel worse. And because they feel worse, they keep complaining. And then there is the sympathy seeker. You may have been around someone like that. Someone who's kind of woe is me. The person who always has something wrong. And in all honesty, you know, there's a fine line between sharing with people, hey, you know, I've got an issue, and just constantly complaining. And if you've ever been in the presence of somebody who's one of those people um, who gets, you know, kind of tripped up 
by, you know, the, well, there's so-and-so. I really want to share what's going on in my life. But the minute I say, hey, can I talk to you about this problem? They'll say, yeah, but right after I tell you mine, I don't know that we necessarily want to be that person. So the question we have to ask ourselves then as Christians, well, what is a good biblical response to negativity, to the bad things that happen in life? Rather than venting, how about praying? What does Paul write in Philippians chapter 4? The good news for modern man translation, I think the message, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God your deeds and don't forget to thank him for his answers. The question for a lot of Christians, though, is not so much, well, what about praying? But how do I pray and why do I pray? And that's why I'm so grateful for theologian and pastor O.S. Hawkins. Remember, he's developed the Code series. And he has an encouragement to Christians who are looking for a richer and robust prayer life, more robust. He's found 40 scripture passages that he believes if we pray these passages on a regular basis, our prayer life will be enhanced and our walk with the Lord will grow stronger. Uh, The book is called The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. I'll talk about it with O.S. Hawkins in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. By investing in the Wilson Financial Services 4D or four-dimensional account, your investment is guaranteed against loss. It provides long-term care benefits, permanent income benefits, and inflation benefits all at the same time. You know, I had a client come in this morning, and the first thing he asked me was, tell me about 4D money. I said, you've got an account right now that's one-dimensional. It's paying you 6% for the next three years, and that's the one dimension it has. I said, 4D money has four dimensions. It'll pay you 4 to 6% a year, but it has three additional dimensions. Number one, it'll provide you with long-term care benefits. Number two, it'll provide you with permanent income benefits. And number three, it'll provide you with inflation benefits, all under the heading of 4D money. So when I explain these things to people, they say, well, you know, that sounds too good to be true. I said, I know, but we have got millions and millions of dollars of clients' money in these accounts, and it's in black and white. It's true. Ask Dennis Wilson and his team at Wilson Financial Services to explain the four dimensions of their 4D account. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970 for simply better alternatives. It's been interesting to see how many people here in this 2022 have found themselves at looking to do things that are kind of maybe self-improvement. And many people have been looking at their prayer life and saying, you know, it just doesn't feel like I'm getting enough out of it. I don't feel like I'm putting enough into it. I I really don't feel like I'm praying with confidence. It just seems like a kind of a perfunctory uh, exercise that I go through uh, in in kind of an empty fashion. And today here on the Bottom Line Show, we're going to change all of that. We're going to put it all in proper perspective with O.S. Hawkins, who's the president and chief executive officer of Guidestone Financial Resources for the Southern Baptist Convention. He's a, a pastor and author of more than 40 books, including the Code series, which has over 2 million copies in print. And the latest edition of this deals with this whole issue of prayer. It's the Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers that Every Believer Should Pray. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. O.S. Hawkins, welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. Thank you, Roger. It's a joy to be with you. appreciate you having me. Why do so many of us wrestle with this issue? I think, and maybe we kind of suffer in silence, that the idea that we know we're supposed to pray, we pray corporately in church, or maybe we pray over meals at home or with our spouse or with our kids. But when it comes right down to it, some of us feel kind of inadequate. We don't feel like our prayers are measuring up. Is that an accurate assessment? Uh, Roger put me at the very top of that list, uh, (laughs) for sure. Uh, 
you know, the more I know about prayer, the less I know about it. So unfathomable Amen. are these researches that God has, has enabled us and empowered us to think about it, to to talk with Him. Uh, you know, the, you mentioned the Code series. <clears throat> it's mostly about the Word of God. The first one was the Joshua Code, 52 Scripture prayers ever believe. I mean, 52 Scripture verses every believer should know. And, uh, you know, the, people try to read the Word of God. They they get bogged down. And by, they, if they start in Genesis, they hardly get to Leviticus. Right. If they start in Matthew, they, they're introduced to over 40 names they can't pronounce. So I picked 52 <laughs> verses that I believe if every believer should know, uh, they could know the theme of the Bible. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. So the whole theme of it was... Not uh, not getting the word into uh, not getting ourselves into the word of God, but getting the word into us, and that was followed by the Jesus Code, fifty-two scripture prayers. Every believer should know the Bible Code, finding Jesus in every book of the Bible. It dawned on me that prayer that the Bible without prayer has no dynamic, and prayer without the Bible has no direction. If all we do is read the Bible every day and are faithful to our Bible reading, but we don't pray. We, we lose a dynamic to our Christian experience. And if, if all we do is pray from time to time, never read the Bible, we, we don't have any real direction in life. Right. So like, like him and eggs and steak and potatoes, they go together. And so <laughs> that's how the prayer, prayer code was birthed. I love that. O.S. Hawkins is with me today here on The Bottom Line. We're talking about the brand new book called The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. You have one of the prayers in the book is called what you called God-honoring prayer. And I realize that there are some prayers that we just kind of run on through, or maybe we know them by heart, and so we just kind of, you know, I'm sure a lot of people could say the Lord's Prayer and not really have it hit them that well. How do you define right. God-honoring prayer? What example do you use in the book? Well, I do, the example I use comes right out of the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> uh, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, it's an astounding thought. Some of us are actually amazed when God answers our direct prayers. Right. And uh, the opposite really ought to be true. And when you read his con his context there, the Sermon on the Mount, when he addressed prayer, the Lord in Matthew 6, he, he repeatedly says, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray, not if you pray. He just assumed that if the Christ was alive in us and we knew him in the intimacy of father and child, that we're going to want to be in communication with him. And that chapter you mentioned, the God on in prayer, uh, God honors prayers that, that are sincere. Jesus said, take heed that you don't do your deeds before men, otherwise you'll have no no reward in heaven. Uh, you know, public prayers, they bring about them sometimes a temptation to fall into to a trap. And uh, all of us have had experience of knowing the cadence and conversation with someone. Then when they're asked to pray publicly, we say, well, who was that? Where'd that <laughs> Where'd that come from? Yeah. So yeah. God honors our sincere prayers that come out of our heart. And he said, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. He honors, I think he honors our secret prayers. And and he said, when you pray, don't use these vain repetitions like the heathen do. Just keep it simple. And and I think God honors not just secret prayers, sincere prayers, but but uh, simple prayers. You know, the simplest prayer, the shortest prayer in all the Bible, uh, Peter just uh, shouted out when he was sinking, Lord, save me. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, Jesus reached out his hand. So, yeah, I don't think it's the—it's like Scripture, Roger, to me. I don't think it's the volume of Scripture we read every day. Some of us try to just read 10, 12 chapters a day. It's not the volume. It's, it's, it's what we get out of maybe one verse that just is quickened to our heart. And the same with prayer. I, I, think, I think a lot of the times uh, just short, simple prayers God is so pleased with. O.S. Hawkins is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. We're talking about his new book called The Prayer Code that identifies 40 scripture prayers that every believer should pray. Got a link for this up at thebottomlineshow.com. I believe, O.S., it kind of goes without saying, and yet I I wonder how many of us find ourselves having finished praying, you know, that final amen is spoken, and then you kind of either get up off your knees or come away from the table or wherever you were praying, and you kind of ask yourself, okay, I want God to answer that prayer, but was I really honest with him? Did I really make a true confession of my sin? Do I really, you know, are these really the desires of my heart? Because sometimes, do you get the sense that prayer is a place where sometimes Christians are afraid to be true and right and honest with God? Yeah, and you know, part of that problem comes when you when we do what you just said. We get through praying, we get up from that and move on. <clears throat> you know, there's a chapter in there on the pattern of prayer. We should begin with the prayer of confession. The Bible right. says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God can't hear me. So I can't pray unless I've come clean before God. Amen. Then we move to the prayer of thanksgiving. He said, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. You can't you can't praise God until you enter in. You can't get in the courtroom until you enter the gate. The gate is thanksgiving. And, and God honors thanksgiving. It's so liberating. Jonah was delivered from the fish's belly when he offered a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So, and then there's the prayer of praise, where we when we praise Him, not for what He's done, but for who He is. And then the prayer of intercession, when we pray for other people. Then the prayer of petition, when we make our petitions known. And then, Roger, I believe there's another level of prayer here. I call it the prayer of communion in the prayer code. It, it's a prayer that goes beyond mere words. And I'm not speaking about some prayer language. Or I'm talking about getting through with our Bible study and prayer. And when we do, just being still before God to listen to his still, small voice, to listen to us. You know, my wife Susie and I have been married for decades. But when we first met, our first date, I was scared she'd think I was boring. I talked the whole time. Mm. Uh, she was the same way the first two or three dates we get. But I'm going to tell you, after we've been dating about two or three months, you could go by her father's house where we'd be sitting in my car out in front. And sometimes we'd sit there for 30 minutes and never say a word. But mm. we were communicating better than we ever had before. And that's the way I look I look at it with the Lord, just to stay before him quietly with an open Bible after I prayed and, and let him speak to me. I, I, I love that visual, OS, of you and your wife having that nonverbal moment, you know, after getting through kind of the, the, the bumps and uh, <laughs> right. bruises of uh, early dating, but establishing that relationship and having that time where you're listening to each other and you're really trying to hear and understand who the other is and building that relationship. And I, I think that's a part of prayer that sometimes uh, I, I come from a Lutheran tradition and sometimes our prayers are very precise and they're very orderly and they don't feel like they have a lot of passion. I mean, in all honesty, and uh, especially when it comes to uh, praying for the lost. And that's one of the uh, things that you talk about in the book, The Prayer Code. Talk about that in light of what we've been through as a culture. Uh, we've seen the last couple of years where there's been the pandemic, so there's a lot of fear. A lot of people who profess faith in God are kind of taking a step back and saying, well, maybe then I'm not that serious about that commitment. 
And others, Christians are saying, okay, I'm in California and I'm moving to Texas because, by golly, I want to practice religious liberty and I want to get away from government tyranny, when in fact maybe God said, I want you in California, I want you in Florida. Yeah, I, these are no, uh, no, Roger, he wants the conservative ones to move out here to Texas. <laughs> That's what he wants. <laughs> okay, okay. Ones over there that don't believe it. That's right. Thank you for that exhortation, O.S. Hawkins. Um, yeah. Hey, let, but let, let's talk about the, the prayer for the lost. How often do we do that? We pray for pray for healing, pray for direction, pray for guidance right. and blessing, but oftentimes we're not praying for the lost. Talk about why it's important to do so. Yeah, it's it's important. And let me just, before I do mention that, you mentioned coming from the Lutheran uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, I come from the Baptist tradition, and the other side of that coin is I grew up in a world where to recite somebody else's prayer, even the Lord's prayer, was something we we were a bit averse to because we thought it ought to all come out of The older I get, the more I appreciate prayers of some of these church fathers and the saints and and, and other things. So it, there's a balance in there. Yeah. You know, as far as praying for the lost, uh, you know, in my early years of my Christian experience, uh, my youth group had come together. We'd pray for our lost friends, and I'd hear them pray, Lord, bless Bobby. Lord, help him uh, speak to his heart. Lord, save him. Help him see the light. And and then we'd always tag on in the end, if it be your will, et cetera, et cetera. So I began to really study what the Bible says about how to really pray for the lost. And there, there are at least three things involved in it. First, we, we pray from the proper approach. Uh, praying for the lost... Uh, who do not know the Lord, it involves having the proper approach to it. And uh, first of all, those without Christ are bound by the devil. And Paul reminds us that it's God who grants repentance so that we might know the truth. The lost are bound in a stronghold. Some are in strongholds of pride. Some are in strongholds of procrastination. Some are in strongholds of presumption, just presuming on some, quote, decision, unquote. And uh, the Bible says if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe. And so, therefore, uh, as you know, Paul said in the Corinthian, second Corinthian letter, the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal. They're not fleshly. Mm-hmm. They're mighty unto God to the pulling down of these strongholds. So I believe we have to look to a lost person and ask God to discern what stronghold they're held in and then enter into the place of prayer. Prayer is warfare. You know, most of our testimonies can be wrapped up in those first few words in Ephesians, for we wrestle not. And and prayer for the lost is where we enter in and and, 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 and wrestle for, the, for these people and pull down these strongholds. Then we pray with the proper aim. Uh, that's so important. Our, the aim, our focus in the lost is not on the lost person. I believe it ought to be on the devil himself who's held, holding them in this stronghold. This is what Amen. happened with Jesus. That Caesarea Philippi, he, he, when Simon Peter tried to divert him to the cross, he, he said, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't calling Peter Satan. He was speaking to that spirit behind him that led him to do that. And and then, you know, we have the authority in Christ to 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 enter in and pray for these. You know, the 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 Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And only Christ has the power to release those who, through the Bible says in Hebrews, the fear of death were all lifetimes subject to that bondage. So God's given us the authority to do this through the blood of Christ. 
talking with O.S. Hawkins today about prayer, and I love that illustration. You talk about the warfare, the battlefield, if you will. Prayer with Code is the name of the book. 40 scripture prayers every believer should pray. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Welcome back to The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. It is an Everyone Wednesday, uh, Wednesday edition of the program. O.S. Hawkins is my guest, and we're talking about the prayer code, 40 scripture prayers every believer should pray. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. The whole theme this hour is prayer and anxiety and casting your cares upon the Lord. We do have one copy of the prayer code to give away. Teresa will be doing so at the end of my conversation with O.S. Hawkins today, but I just want to give you a little heads up. 800-227-5278 is the number to call. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. That is the number to get you through to the bottom line. You know, everybody wants a richer prayer life. There's no question about it. And yet, when you talk about what we're praying for, uh, there are a lot of people who pray for courage. There's no question about that. I mentioned at the beginning, there are people who are praying for healing. In my world right now, my buddy Sean, for his wife and for uh, my friend Chad, for his son, who is now with the Lord. And you know people who are experiencing that all the time. I think of the, the grief and the healing that I've been seeking uh, with the passing of one of my oldest friends earlier this year, Gary Robinson. But, you know, it's amazing how when O.S. Hawkins breaks this down and shows us these 40 different passages, each of the entries in the book has a prayer, uh, some principles you could draw from, from that prayer, and then a code word to help you apply those truths to your life. And so this is definitely a prayer code, not a super formula. Just do all these things and your life is going to turn out great. But rather, <clears throat> this is a, uh, well, what does James tell us? The fervent prayer of righteous people availeth much. O.S. Hawkins, the prayer code, 40 scripture prayers every believer should pray. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. We'll take a quick break and come back with part two of this conversation in just a moment as the bottom line continues. I'm talking with O.S. Hawkins today about prayer. Prayer with Code is the name of the book. 40 scripture prayers every believer should pray. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. There's been a lot of uh, talk recently about fasting. Uh, in the church, of course, we talk about fasting quite a bit. Outside of the church, fasting is a new diet t- trend. You know, hey, intermittent fasting is the way to lose weight. Talk about the connection of prayer and fasting, O.S. Hawkins. Why is it important for us as Christians to understand how these two go together in God's economy? Well, for one thing, you 1,000% right. I had somebody this very day tell me... Uh, I'd seen them. I hadn't seen them in a while. They had lost so much weight. And they said, I'm fasting. I'm fasting. I said, well, what kind of spiritual benefit? He said, oh, no, no, no. It's intermittent fasting. I just don't mm-hmm. eat between, I only eat between noon and 6 p.m. Well, fasting in the Bible, uh, uh, you remember when the disciples couldn't cast out the demons. They came to Jesus. Why well, couldn't we cast them out? And Jesus mm-hmm. said, uh, this kind only comes by prayer and fasting. And so, uh, you know, fasting is a discipline that many of us have practiced our entire lives. For me, it's not a matter of of uh, talking about it that much. In fact, Jesus said, when you fast, he, and he didn't say if you fast, he said when you fast, he assumed we would do it. And that just means to abstain from, uh, particularly for food, for some people, for a certain amount of time. And for me, it's never been the amount of time. It's the discipline behind it so that every stomach pain reminds you of the purpose of your fast. I never fasted unless I had a purpose and 
mind that I wanted to focus all my attention about and and uh, and, and 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 that's why I did it. You know, you just read the Bible. Moses fasted, David fasted, Elijah fasted, Nehemiah fasted, uh, Esther fasted before uh, all of those Jesus fasted after his baptism. Everybody that was used of God in scripture fasted. And it's just a spiritual discipline that enables us to bring our focus to the matter of our prayer focus so that we can continue to seriously call out to the Lord in prayer. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the fasting in terms of the spiritual discipline, but also on the the physical side. I had a Sunday school teacher when I was in about seventh grade or so. He was one of the biggest, heaviest guys I ever knew. And I was stunned to find out years later that every Monday his entire family fasted and prayed. And I thought, well, it may have had some spiritual good. I don't know that it necessarily helped him on the uh, the other six days of the week with regard to eating. But you're right, that spiritual discipline of feeling those pains, really relating to where God is and where he's leading, and I think driving us closer to the will of God. I'm talking with O.S. Hawkins today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. There is the part of, and you mentioned this earlier, I want to circle back around to it, O.S., the uh, the fact that uh, prayer and the will of God is you're praying according to God's will. So you're praying in Jesus' name. You're asking, you know, that thy will be done uh, on earth as it is here in heaven. Talk about why praying and the will of God sometimes get detached in the Christian's life and why you've got a chapter on this in the prayer code book that reminds us to bring it back to your prayers are going to be answered if you're praying according to the will of God as opposed to, hey, God, I wonder if you would deify something that I really, really want in my own life. Yeah, such a bullseye question, Roger. <clears throat> and it's it, it, prayer, like everything else in our lives, is wrapped up in the will of God. Uh, God doesn't want to veil his will to us. He's more interested in us knowing it than we are ourselves. Uh, sometimes what we want to do, though, you just mentioned what Jesus said in the model prayer when he said, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're trying to do is, is what God's will is to get it into play in our action down here. Too many of us try to manipulate it to say that thy will, we want my will on earth to be what your will is in heaven. But it's not that way. It's the other way around. So that's why in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talked so much about prayer, he said in Matthew 7, verse 7, there were three levels of prayer. First of all, he said, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock, he said, and it'll be opened unto you. And those are the three levels of prayer. Many of us never get past the first one. Uh, ask, just asking. We don't know what it is to seek in prayer, much less to just continue to knock when we don't see the answer yet. But these, that verse is all about the will of God. For example, we know the will of God in a matter. We're convinced of it. You know, I believe that God is not willing to, but that, it, that, that any parish, but all come to repentance and salvation. So I believe it's God's will for someone to be saved. And so what does he do? He asks. And he received. You don't have to seek and seek and seek to be saved. You don't have to beg and plead and keep knocking to be saved. You just ask, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You ask and receive. So if you know the will of God, you ask and receive. What about those situations in life where we don't know the will of God? That's the next level. He said, seek and you will find. Uh, and and sometimes, and, and, and in my own experience, 
you know, I'm searching for the will of God, and I'm seeking it. And I always think I, I find it, not by some extra-biblical revelation, but God always speaks to us by His Spirit through His Word. I mean, we'll be reading a verse. It's a, uh, we, uh, we, all, we, we, we live by Bible promises, my wife and I. Hmm. What I mean by that is uh, you don't find a Bible promise. It finds you. I mean, you, I'm not talking about Russian roulette where you open your Bible and close your <laughs> eyes and put it back down on the verse. Right. So right. that's for me. No, in the normal traffic of your Bible study reading, the Spirit of God will quicken some verse to you. All of us have had this experience. We said, man, that is for me. That's what I need right now. So we seek and we'll find it. But now what about that time when we know the will of God in the matter, but we haven't seen it fulfilled yet? He said, knock, and the verb tense, keep on knocking. Don't stop. Keep knocking. Importunity, like that person Jesus told that came at midnight knocking on the door. Never quit. Just keep knocking, and it'll be opened unto you. So, Roger, the truth is Jesus answers prayer, all of our prayers. But he does it in four ways. Sometimes the answer is direct. We pray about something, and bam, there's the answer right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes... It's delayed. In other words, we pray about something, and we don't see the answer. We, we're putting a holding pattern for some, for his reasons, for our good and his glory. Somehow it's, it's delayed. He answers it eventually, but it's delayed. Thirdly, sometimes it's different. He, he answers our prayer, but he does it in a different way in which we prayed, and we look back to see, man, that was for his glory and my good. And then fourthly, sometimes he answers our prayer, and it's denied. And quite frankly, Roger, I'm so grateful God hadn't answered all my prayers like I've had. I'm so glad he's denied some of them because mm-hmm. there have been times in my life where I asked him for things that would not have been to my good. And he knew best, and he denied it. So anytime I hear somebody say, God answered, God, I pray, but God didn't answer. Yes, he did. He yeah. answers, sometimes direct, sometimes delayed, sometimes it's different. And sometimes, quite honestly, it's denied, but it'll be for his glory and your good. Boy, it sounds like you've been uh, drinking deeply from the well of that noted theologian Garth Brooks, you know, who said sometimes we thank God for, for unanswered prayers. But uh, uh, little little tongue-in-cheek as far as that goes, but nonetheless, I think that's, that's so wonderful in terms of uh, the four ways that God answers our prayer and why the prayer code is so important. O.S. Hawkins has been my guest today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. O.S always a, ch- a great opportunity and a great time when we do get together to discuss the works that God has but, been writing thank through you. Thank you, Roger. And may I just say that like all the code books, all the royalties to these books go to support mission dignity. We're on a mission to bring dignity to some forgotten folks, and that's retired pastors and their widows. At their average age, 85, they pastored somewhere in the crossroads all their life, never made enough to live on, much less retire on. They retired, had to get out of a church on home, have nothing. Ten years ago, we gave them ten dollars, $50 a month. We raised so much money, and the books are sold so well that now the neediest of them, of the thousands in our program, get $750 a month. And one little pastor's widow, 87 years old, wrote me recently and said, I get to eat at night now, and it's not just a piece of toast. So mm-hmm. your, your listeners can know when they purchase a pr- the prayer code or any of the code books that all the royalties go to these precious people. You can find out more about them at oshawkins.com. 
All right. Couldn't said it any better myself. We'll make sure that our link is up for OSHawkins.com at thebottomlineshow.com as well. OS Hawkins, thanks for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thank you so much, Roger, and blessings on you. Great conversation, always is, with O.S. Hawkins, the author of the Code series and the book that we just discussed, The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we're giving away a copy today, 800-227-5278. Hey, we're giving it away right now, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to The Bottom Line Show. And remember, today is Wednesday. That means it's an everyone wins day. So if you call, I mean, sometimes you'll call and go, oh, wait, I just heard him give the phone number and I was going to call, but I didn't call in time and now I probably won't win, right? Because, you know, we're not one of those be the 15th caller type of stations. It doesn't work like that. I mean, you call, you talk to Teresa or Joel or Todd, whoever's answering the phone at that moment, and they ask you a few questions. Do you like the station? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, we, we'd like to get to know you a little bit better. We don't just want to say, hey, Jeff from San Luis Obispo, you win. You know, that, that's... This is a relationship we have here, right? It's a friendship. So when you call that number, uh, you'll be engaged in a bit of a conversation, you know, with our staff here, just getting to know you a little bit better. But on Wednesdays especially, uh, this stemmed from a few months ago when we were giving away a book and, and, and it just everybody on that day wanted it. And I said, well, shoot, every Wednesday from here on out is Everyone Wednesday. So when you call 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. That is the number that gets you through to the Bottom Line Show. And uh, regardless, we got one copy of the O.S. Hawkins book to give away on the prayer code, but everybody else who calls in is going to win something. So it's a guaranteed, it's an easy breezy. We put up the bumpers on the bowling alley, so when you throw the ball, you're going to get a strike. It's just that simple. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, talking about prayer all this hour, I started in at the top of the hour, for those who are just joining us, by talking about uh, a new study that is showing that when it comes to complaining, uh, venting and getting things off your chest. Um, scientifically now, uh, we've got a scriptural example of why we shouldn't do that, but um, scientifically, there's, there's new data that says the people who have a tendency to complain the most are the people who keep complaining, and the reason why they keep complaining is because the complaining <clears throat> rewires their brains to feel more negative and more anxious and whatever. So what are some solutions for that? Well, one of the things I want to recommend is something we're going to take a look at on the other side of this break, and that is to find out what is making other people anxious. I know this sounds crazy. You want, you want your own mental health to be solid and in lockstep with others, but as Christians especially, if we are to go in the world and preach the gospel to everybody, knowing that we're going to encounter some people who do not have the capacity yet to receive it, what kind of people are we going to be encountering? We'll talk about that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to the bottom line. I'm Roger Marsh, and we're still taking your calls today at 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line show uh, for your copy of, we're giving away one, of the book by O.S. Hawkins called The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. We have one of those to give away, but since today is Wednesday, it's Everyone Wins Day. So your chances of winning something when you call that number are 100%. Absolute guarantee. Just like birth, death, and taxes, 100% guarantee that you're going to get something. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. Started the hour, I talked about this new study 
uh, Dr. Donald Hebb, who's a neuropsychologist, uh, came up with a hypothesis for why people are falling into these negative patterns. And uh, this is Clemson University professor of psychology, Robin Kowalski, uh, is the one who did the study. But the idea that people who engage in, you know, we've been told for years, uh, you want to get something off your chest, you got to vent your spleen, whatever it is, that's good. We really need to get that stuff out there. What was that song from Tears for Fears? Shout, shout, let it all out. These are the things I could do without, you know. It's a, it, now, there's a big difference, obviously. You could be loud. I mean, <laughs> I mean everybody's going to have complaints from time to time. But I'll tell you what, one place that we used to get a lot of this tension out was at athletic events. Right. You go and go to the baseball game or the auto race or whatever it is, and you cheer for your team and you boo the other team. And, but you're getting all that stuff out in a way that's controlled and it's fine. And you're not taking it out on anyone personally, hopefully. That's fine. I mean, my kids grew up in a home. Their mom didn't like the loud noises for whatever reason. She had some triggers kind of reminded her, I think, of some of the trauma when she was growing up as a kid. Well, I'm a whooper. You know, someone makes a good play. I'm like, whoa, look at that play. You know, that, that's me, right? That's my personality. So the first couple of times I would be doing that, watching a football game or whatever, my girls especially would be, daddy, don't get mad. I was, oh, honey, I'm not mad. That was a fantastic shot. Did you see that pass? Did this, that, and the other thing. And so I started bringing into that lexicon announcers like Tom Kelly used to do SC football and Keith Jackson, ho, ho, Nelly, you know, bring these announcers who could really you know, show them this was just me in a healthy way getting this out. But there are a lot of people, and especially over the past few years, the number has gotten even worse of people who fall into three different types of categories that are draining relationships and kind of driving people away. This negative attitude of the venter, the person who's always upset, there's always something wrong. But then when you bring a solution to them, they don't want a solution. They just want to be upset. And then there's the chronic complainer you know, who basically will say there's a problem here, but they don't realize that because they're always complaining about something, their brain is being rewired to think that there's always going to be something wrong. So now when you bring up a solution, they're not just vending to get it off their chest. They really don't have any concept of the fact that something could go right <laughs> in that situation. And then there are the people who complain simply because they want sympathy. You know, maybe you have that little kid, uh, mom, my, uh, my finger hurts. C give me a hug. Can I have a cookie? You know, that they, they like that. The problem with the sympathy seeker, of course, is when you do have a legitimate gripe and you start talking about, wow, this is a real pain because my car got hit or this, that, and the other thing, they don't have any empathy or sympathy for you. All they do is keep bringing back their own lousy experiences. Um, it's interesting though, to see this secular report and then look at their solutions because <laughs> this is very, very interesting because how biblical these solutions work. Uh, one psychologist says these are four tricks to avoid negativity. But tell me if you think this sounds like something God would have us do. Number one, give thanks. Even for the little things in life, make sure that you have an attitude of gratitude for everything you experience. You know, remember the scripture says, be thankful in all things. It doesn't say be thankful for all things. I, I know that as I have a couple of friends who've had to bury children this year, one woman buried her husband. Um, I mean, this, it, those are not pain, painless situations, but you can find things to be thankful for and it really does help change your attitude. Number two, be aware of yourself. 
Remember the old uh, the noted theologian Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits? That was sarcasm. Uh, who said, who wrote a song called Solid Rock. He said, when you point your finger because your plans fell through, remember, you've got three more fingers pointing back at you. The one constant in all of your lousy relationships is you. So self-awareness is massive. It's like what Jesus gives the example in the parable with a guy who beat his breast and sunk his head low and prayed, Lord, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. That guy knew exactly the score. Uh, third, start a new pattern. Retrain your brain. Recognize what the world has done to you and then thanks be to God for what the Holy Spirit is doing through you. Your brain can be rewired. Not just because you're thinking positive thoughts. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. God's in the res- restoration business. And then finally, practice, practice, practice doing yourself doing this yourself. Remind yourself to let go of that which is not helpful and nurture skill and productivity. It reminds me of Proverbs 29.11. And I'll close this part of the program with this. <laughs> Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Another one, Proverbs 12.16. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. Proverbs 12:23 A shrewd man keeps his knowledge to himself but a foolish heart proclaims its folly. In other words, wisdom, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. The heart that is f- completely sold out to God does not need to complain at every single turn. The occasional complaint, I get it, but constant complaining, check yourself before you wreck yourself. We'll put this article up at thebottomlineshow.com. As we continue, one of the ways that we in the body of Christ can demonstrate a love for others is to understand where they are. But let me ask you the question. How can you be sure that you can understand and relate to people when you don't know what kind of questions they're really asking? We'll take a look at that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. We're talking about prayer. We're talking about, well, O.S. Hawkins and his book, The Prayer Code, which we've got a copy to give away. We'll have a last few minutes to get your call in. Uh, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line for the one copy that we're giving away of this book. However, uh, please bear in mind that today is Everyone Wednesday, so if you call, just because you don't get O.S. Hawkins' book, doesn't mean you're not going to win something, okay? 800-227-5278. Before the break, I was uh, musing on why people complain and how unbelievers will complain and complain and complain, and they fall into three different categories. Either they are constantly complaining or they are venting, if you will, and we gave some examples in Scripture as to why venting is not necessarily a good idea. And then the people who just want sympathy. But as Christians, there's a way that we can handle our anger, handle our wrath, handle our complaints. But if we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation, the people who are hearing this gospel for the first time are probably complainers. Chances are, though, that complaining might be masking something else. And so I want to wrap up this hour with just a reminder. This is from uh, pagetraffic.com. They are through this part of 2022. What are the most 100 asked questions on Google. (laughs) Where do people really live? Now, I'll be honest with you. I thought 
with all the problems that the Internal Revenue Service has had recently, that most people would be saying, where's my tax refund, <laughs> right? Um, that's actually second. There were 7,480,000 searches in Google through the middle of August 2022 asking, where's my refund? The number one question that people are asking on Google is what should I watch on TV? No joke. 9.1 million times that question has been asked. Um, <laughs> some of these others, I mean, number 10, 1.5 million people asked, how do I lose weight fast? Uh, another 1.83 million asked, how do I do a screenshot to on a Mac? Apparently it's a lot easier on a PC. Um, but then there's some other interesting ones. How many ounces in a cup? 2.74 million people have asked that question on Google so far. What is my IP address? That's interesting. I don't think I've ever asked that question before. And then there are the snarky ones. Uh, how did I meet your mother? Ah, I'm thinking. But then there were two that really jumped out at me. And I thought, this is going to help me with regard to the way I present the gospel and how I approach people. Because oftentimes, I'm human, you're human, we do the same thing. We'll approach people based on, well, uh, this guy almost cut me off in traffic, so my first approach is, hey, don't you know how to drive? And I'll give full vent in the car sometimes to that, and I repent of it right away. If you've ever been in an accident, you know what it's like to have somebody kind of rattle that cage and pull that trigger. That's a hard one. That's really tough to get that in line. But these two questions round out the top 10, uh, and they're looking, uh, there's a keyword tool that uh, page traffic has up at pagetraffic.com where you can do this list for yourself. Um, I figured a lot of people would say, where's my tax refund? That's one. But here are the two questions that jumped out at me. The first one was, where am I? Now, I realize that's somebody whose GPS isn't working. And they're trying to find out quickly where they're starting because it might be giving them bad directions from wherever they are and they simply don't know. If you're in a new city, you don't know what your street address is or where you are in that city. And you need to find directions to get yourself out of there. But where am I? For a lot of people is they think they're in a material world that has a beginning and an end and the goal of life is to make as much money as you can and then die young and happy. And you and I as Christians know that's not true. The second question is equally as important, and that is, what time is it? <laughs> now, I haven't worn a watch in quite some time. My phone is my watch. I, As long as the GPS and everything is working on my Verizon account, I always know what time it is. That's my whole career and my life is time. But when you think of it in the eternal sense, what time is it? Where are we in biblical history? When is the Lord's return coming? We don't know the day and the hour, but as Christians, a question like what time is it has two different meanings. And for the temporal, carnal man or woman, it only has one. What time is it is I got a dinner reservation at 8 o'clock and I don't want to be late for it. My flight leaves at 6.30 and I don't want to be late for that. Oh my gosh, my alarm didn't go off. I'm going to be late for work. But what time is it is uh, where are we in world history and when is the Lord coming back? How much time do we have left to preach the good news? That's a question that only God knows the answer to, and the more we stay on his timing, the better. And that's the bottom line. 
For our KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your Everyone Wednesday. And we've got Rabbi Schneider and Discovering the Jewish Jesus coming up next. For those who remain on the network, an interesting phenomenon is happening with regard to people being diagnosed with cancer. And one of the leading causes of cancer diagnosis is one of the most unusual. We're going to talk about that coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show, or welcome to The Bottom Line Show. Uh, take your pick. <laughs> I'm Roger Martian. My thanks again to O.S. Hawkins for joining us in the first hour of the broadcast to talk about the prayer code, 40 scripture prayers every believer should pray. We've got that book linked up at thebottomlineshow.com. Also, uh, links for the articles that I shared in that first uh First hour was interesting about prayer and pain and how many people are complainers in the culture right now and how that really physically uh, rewires your brain to more complaining and uh, the act of prayer and God's Holy Spirit in your heart can restore your mind as well as your heart and soul. Um, That thing about the Google questions I thought was really interesting in the sense that two of the most common questions asked on Google are what do I watch on TV and where's my tax refund? But two others were what time is it and where am i and that can pertain to the temporal and that can also pertain to the eternal as well and as we are in the business of preaching the gospel sharing the good news uh, dealing with our brothers and sisters perhaps we could be a bit more gracious we don't want to not hold people accountable but perhaps we could be more gracious to people who either profess faith in christ and really don't have a saving faith in him or Uh, people who are uh, new to the faith who might think, well, everything's going well for them because they just, you know, they're everything's going well for them. But, you know, one of the things that I have discovered over the past, I'll say five years, because I realized that we are uh, post-pandemic now, we're in endemic mode. And as a result, uh, people are trying to figure out what the new normal is for life. Um, And I'll be honest with you, my heart breaks every time I see somebody whose life was radically altered because of the pandemic, either because obviously somebody got COVID and it impacted their health and they wound up dying, or people who have had reactions to the vaccine, and that led to a demise in their health, a decline in their health, if not, you know, ending their lives as well. I mean, there are a lot of realities. It's, It's too, it's unfortunate that we spend as much time as we do in the culture trying to blame people either for being pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine or pro-mask or anti-mask or pro-shutdown or anti-shutdown. I mean, at this point now, to quote the uh, famous historian Hillary Clinton, at this point, what difference does it make? I mean, we are where we are. This is, we're on, it's August the 17th, 2022. We know what we know about and we're learning more every day about the virus, about its origins, about how it spread, about how one of the biggest issues, you know, we were talking the first hour about prayer and, and complaining and, and uh, Proverbs 29, 11, heck, there are four or five verses that come to mind about the wise man doesn't give full vent to his, not only full vent to his wisdom or his, his anger, uh, but the fool, you know, has to wander off and do it. And the scientific studies that say when you complain a lot, the complaining leads to more complaining. It just kind of rewires your brain to where you become a complainer, either because you just want to vent, it feels good to say it. You don't want solutions, you just want to complain. Or you complain and then that creates more negative thoughts and so now you can't see any positive alternatives anyway. Or you just want sympathy. 
you know, God, I'm really sorry that your, uh, your kid died, but let me tell you about my flat tire. You know I mean? That, those are, sometimes they could seem narcissistic and insensitive. The reality is as Christians, we know, like in the case of, you know, whether it's monkeypox or COVID, there's an origin to these things. They have a spread or they don't, um, how they're transmissible or not. Um, the, the more we can learn, but first and foremost, I, I, I can't stress this enough. And I, I find that now that I'm not in a pastoral role at my church per se, I'm still, God's bringing me into those different areas in our new community and uh, in, even within this program. And I'm grateful for that you know, uh, branch of ministry. But one of the biggest issues, more than anything else, that everybody seems to be going with through is fear. No question, the, the fear of the unknown. The I thought life worked like this, and now it, I find out that it doesn't and people are telling me to watch out for this and beware of that and why aren't you doing this? And, and that fear is just driving people crazy. I believe it was Johns Hopkins. It was one of the larger East Coast hospitals. Yeah, Johns Hopkins, Maryland. I guess that's East Coast. Um, did a study. There was one in New York and also in New Jersey. The New York study was fascinating because they found like when it came to COVID, for example, that as many people contracted COVID at the hospital as people who went to the hospital with COVID. That was a real eye opener. Governor Cuomo at the time wasn't sharing that information with people. The fact that, that we heard people died in the hospital because of COVID and people got all freaked out. You're going to get COVID. You're going to go to the hospital. You're going to die. No one was making the connection that part of the reason why people were dying of COVID in the hospital was they got COVID in the hospital and the treatment there wasn't right for whatever reason. Now, I know in my COVID experience two and a half months ago, I got pneumonia. I had a very, very sore throat. It was very difficult to swallow. It was never difficult to breathe. It was just an inconvenience. You know, every time even just a little bit of saliva goes down your throat, you're like, ow, man, that really hurt. And that lasted for about a day, maybe a day and a half. I took... Uh, honey-coated cough syrup, stuff like that just to coat my throat. But it wasn't until I actually got medication for the pneumonia. I got an inhaler and was taking some antibiotics. That took about a week to get the phlegm out, to get everything moving. And then I was just tired. I was just run down. And if you've got COVID fatigue, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, I've had days where it's like, well, doing it from the home studio today because I just don't have the strength. But those are realities. And we can look down and see, okay, COVID is, you know, at worst a respiratory ailment. And if you've got a cold or a flu or pneumonia and you get COVID as well, it's going to make it tougher to get over that. And for some people with other pre-existing conditions, hypertension, diabetes, high blood pressure, whatever it is, overweight, that is going to be a problem. So we're starting to see the patterns now with COVID. And again, this is not to say I was right and you were wrong or I was wrong and you were right. This is not about choosing sides and going to battle over this. It's this is a disease. It's a virus. It impacts people different ways. Some of the oldest and seemingly most frail people I've known have had COVID two or three times and they're fine. Some of the youngest and hardiest and stouted people I know got COVID once and they're no longer the same. I have a friend who got COVID early on into it. A year and a half later, he still has no sense of smell. I mean, yeah, it, it, so you can't quite figure it out. You can't completely politicize it. You can't campaign on it and fundraise on it, though many of the political parties do. But one of the more interesting aspects of what's happening in the culture right now is not COVID related, but rather a link that researchers did not see would not have made sense until a study that was released, uh, actually it was in Lancet Oncology, and Lancet's one of the big, it's like the Journal of American Medicine, it's one of the big medical journals that's released. 
Lancet Oncology means, of course, they're doing studies on cancer. And they found that there's a new source of cancer that oncologists had never, ever considered. It may have been exacerbated by the, uh, by the pandemic. It's hard to say. But in, the, in, in recent years, we've been seeing more and more of this type of thing happening. Now, back in the day, I had, uh, when I was growing up, I uh, grew up in a home that had three grandparents. My dad's mother and father were alive and they, they were semi-retired. They lived in 29 Palms out in the desert. We lived in Whittier and then Orange County. So they were a couple hours away. We didn't see them all the time. My mother's mother was still very much with us. She lived in Whittier, and uh, she's the apple of everybody's eye. We really loved her. Not that I didn't love my other grandparents. It just, Grandma B was more fun. But my grandfather, my granddaddy B, as we referred to him, uh, died about a year before I was born, a year and a half before I was born. And, uh, and so that I, I never knew him. I just I grew up on the legend of Homer Benilius. I didn't <laughs> I didn't actually know him. Get to you know play baseball with him and stuff like that. I can only imagine uh, what life would have been like. He was 57, I believe, when he died, and he died of cancer. Now, I knew that both of my grandfathers smoked. Neither of my grandmothers did. You know, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, smoking was very elegant, right? Lucy and Ricky smoked, and I love Lucy for crying out loud. Hey, Fred and Ethel, come on over. Let's knock out some lucky strikes. I mean, that, that's just what the sophisticated people did. Until we began to realize, hey, wait a minute, smoking cigarettes with all the chemicals that go into them for preserving them and extending the flavor and making them more addictive so you want to smoke them more, uh, that's going to lead to lung cancer. And so it was pretty natural. for me. I, I didn't realize how much smoke was in my family system until two things happened. First of all, when I got older and Claritin D was no longer uh, prescription only, I began to breathe more clearly, go, holy cow, I didn't realize how bad my sinuses were when I was growing up. The second was, I remember when my grandmother had passed away, my brother and I inherited some of her furnishings. And there was this big torsier lamp, not the $20 one you get at Target or Ikea, but I mean, it was like solid glass and you know metal. And it was just you know the way they used to make stuff. And so we brought it from my grandmother's home to the condo my brother and I were renting. And I went to plug it in and I noticed it was kind of dusty. And I thought, you know, I wonder when the last time this thing was cleaned. And so I took the, uh, the uplighting off, the little dish, got a little soap and water, cleaned it up in the sink, put it back on. And all of a sudden, that really soft, almost uh, yellowy light that used to come through that lamp that I loved, it was so comforting, it was so assuring, all of a sudden it was bright white. And I was talking to someone about it. They said, oh, yeah, man, that nicotine just hangs around there forever. No one had ever cleaned it. So I knew growing up, both of my grandfathers were chain smokers. My dad's dad died in his 70s. He had emphysema. He weighed about 60 pounds when he died. He really just ravaged his body. My mother's father died of cancer. I knew he was a smoker, but he actually developed colon cancer when he was younger. And when they went and did the colostomy and did the surgery, um, it had spread to his stomach and eventually his lungs. So technically he died of lung, stomach, and colon cancer. But we knew why that happened, right? I mean, everybody's known as long, if you're my age or younger, everybody knows, everyone told you smoking cigarettes is bad and you're going to get cancer and you're going to die. So don't smoke cigarettes. But more and more people have stopped smoking. Fewer and fewer Americans by percentage of population are smoking. And yet it seems like cancer cases are on the rise, Well, what would, what would you say if I told you that one of the greatest risks to cancer was not smoking cigarettes, but having a glass of wine with dinner? 
surprising new study. We're going to do a little analysis, balance, and clarity on whether or not drinking alcohol can lead to cancer. Coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Welcome back to this Everyone Wednesday here on The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. If you did get a chance to call in for O.S. Hawkins' book on the prayer code, call anyway, and Teresa will give you something because everyone's a winner today at 800-227-5278. Lancet Oncology, which is kind of like the Journal of American Medicine type of publication, uh, took a look, research was published recently, took a look at all of the new cancer cases in 2020 in the United States. And I, I, I read this with great interest because a friend of mine from high school who always wanted to be a doctor, became a doctor. Uh, he is married to a really wonderful woman. Uh, we know each other fairly well. And I didn't know because we had just been connected on social media for the past couple of years that she recently went through her second bout of lung cancer. And I pinged him and said, hey, Dave, everything okay with uh, Michelle? Goes, oh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, lung cancer, huh? He goes, yeah, never smoked a day in her life. I'm hearing that more and more from people, people getting lung cancer who never had a cigarette issue, people getting liver cancer, people getting esophageal cancer. And, you know, esophagus, you might see that, you know, connected to the two. But this new study from Lancet Oncology is really eye-opening. Most cancers that people are getting these days are now linked to People who drink alcohol on a regular basis. It's interesting. 75% of alcohol-related cancers this past in that 2020, which is the last year they had uh, information for, were diagnosed in men. The majority of them were liver and esophageal cancer. Uh, 25% of the cancers diagnosed were in women, and typically a woman had breast cancer. But 750,000 cases of cancer in 2020 were linked to alcohol consumption rather than the typical bad guys of uh, asbestos pollution or cigarette smoking or something of the sort. Isn't that incredible? Now, why would this be so interesting to us to actually focus? Well, take a look at what's been going on for the past two, three years in particular in the United States in particular, but I mean, worldwide, because of the lockdown, because of the pandemic, or some people would say plandemic, I think it's equal parts. The number of people who have been abusing prescription medications has gone up. The number of people abusing alcohol has gone up. I was surprised initially to read that during the first year of pandemic, the number of people who had cancer diagnoses in the U.S. went up by 30%. That just seemed weird. I mean, it didn't make any sense. Why would so many more people get cancer? Well, maybe it's because they're not as active. Maybe they're not out and about as much. Maybe there's there's something to the natural immunities that we get from cold and flu just by being out and about and interacting with other people. Going to the supermarket, going to the restaurant, being at church, all the places that you go. Even if you work in a relatively small office and you don't see a lot of people on a regular basis, you might be part of one of those what they call family churches. And it's not because it's run by a family, but it's because the size is four or five families getting together could be the whole church. And that's in essence what they're doing. Like 50, 70 members. 
you're not even seeing those people on a regular basis. And I know my, my church for many years, Lutheran Church of the Cross, we were worshiping four or 500 people on a Sunday. Well, I'm in pastoral ministry, so I'm seeing that many people. And my little introverted self would go home at the end of church and take a nap <laughs> because I was tired. And I wasn't doing a whole lot with all those people, but just being around that many people really took a lot out. But why is it now that more and more people, 750,000 cases of cancer diagnosed in 2020 that are alcohol related? Are you kidding me? Why? According to Dr. David O'Dell, who's an oncologist at Northwestern, uh, he told CBS News, well, you have to understand what alcohol does to your body. Most people think of alcohol as something that is soothing or relaxing. Many people, it has medicinal qualities. You know, there's rubbing alcohol that keeps things clean and alcohol is something that would be a benefit to your body. A little wine for the stomach. You know, even in scripture, they talk about this. But Dr. David O'Dell at uh, Northwestern says, but people forget that in addition to that, alcohol is an irritant. It irritates the lining of your mouth. So then it irritates the lining of your throat, which then irritates the lining of your stomach. And so as your body is trying to heal, sometimes it'll heal in a way that's somewhat abnormal. It isn't the normal, because let's face it, if you take, for example, we've all had this happen before, cup of coffee, cup of tea, maybe some soup. It's hotter than you thought it was going to be. You take a sip and all of a sudden, boom, half your taste buds are gone, right? You know, eh, that's kind of tender. Mm, I don't like that. Well, how long does it take for all that stuff to recover? Not a whole long. I mean, longer than you want, obviously, but it, it, it does recover. That's kind of natural, you know, hot food, right? But when it comes to alcohol, alcohol consumption can really wreak havoc on your insides. Now, think about this for a moment. It does not take a lot of alcohol consumption to create the perfect recipe for cancers to form in your body. Typically, the definition of someone who is not a heavy drinker is a certain number of drinks per week. And by drink, you're talking about level of consumption in ounces, right? I mean, or milliliters if you're in European system. Uh, I did know of a person who was going through a spout with alcoholism who was just shocked to find out that they were in the hospital because of alcohol. And so I go to make the visit and we start talking. I said, well, let me, can I ask you some questions about how much you actually do drink? Because, I mean, you're hooked up to three different IVs and they're telling you if you drink again, you're going to die. And so I asked this guy, what, what do you drink? And he told me what his drink was. It was hard liquor or something you'd mix. And I said, uh, how many drinks do you have a day? He goes, one. When I get home from work, I just have, I have a drink. I said, really? I said, well, can you describe the drink? And he says, yeah. He said, I have these tumblers. I said, yeah, how many ounces of the tumbler? And he goes, oh, about 24. I said, okay, okay. My grand grandfather, who I did know, was a bartender at one point, and he showed me about, you know, alcohol levels and consumption, how many fingers, how many ounces, whatever. And I could tell you that 24 ounces of a drink that's got vodka or gin in it, that's a lot of hard liquor. I said, right, and so how many times do you refill the cup? And he goes, well, I don't refill it. I, I top it off every now and again, but I mean, I just pour myself one drink. I said, okay, so how many ounces do you go through a week? And he goes, well, a couple of fifths, you know, and I'm, okay, there's a problem here. 
But the problem was, first of all, that he was drinking so much. But secondly, he had no idea he was doing it. What he told himself was, I have one drink after I come home from work and that relaxes me. What he didn't tell himself was, I'm going through two-fifths of gin every week. In the study published by uh, Lancet Oncology, heavy consumption was defined as having more than two alcoholic drinks per day. There were 100,000 cases worldwide of people who did develop cancer and did have less than two drinks per day. But by and large, 750,000 new cancer cases worldwide that are alcohol-related. That accounts for 4% of all new cancer cases in the world were caused by alcohol consumption instead of something else. So what can we as the body of Christ learn from this? And how can we approach this study? Some practical ways and some spiritual ways too. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. Here at K-Bright, we are proud to recommend Stephanie and Jim Cover of Cover Law because they take such good care of their clients. I was coming home. It was like two days before Christmas. And I was sitting at a bottom of a hill and somebody just came smashing into me. Like they didn't even break or anything. They were coming down a steep hill. The people that hit me had no insurance, no license, no proof of anything. I had a lot going on in my life at the at the time. I was busy at work. I was doing a lot of overtime. My husband came down with cancer. That was really a hard point in my life for my husband and I. She was by my side trying to help me through the accident and giving me personal support and telling me to keep the faith. And I was all ready like to, you know, throw in the towel. And she, she just kept me going. They're just hardworking people. They know their stuff. They're very educated. They make you feel comfortable. They stick with you all the way. I used them as attorneys. Now they're friends. And once in a while, I tease them. Do I need to get in trouble so I could retain you guys? <laughs> I'd do anything to help those guys. I highly recommend them. I mean, I haven't had need for an attorney before, and I fell into the right hands. In the event of an accident, call Cover Law right away, 877-214-4935. That's 877-214-4935. Welcome back to this Everyone Wednesday, a.k.a. the Wednesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh talking about a fascinating new study in Lancet Oncology. CBS News is reporting that in the last year that they had data available on cancer cases, uh, 2020. The number of people worldwide who developed cancer because they were heavy drinkers never picked up a cigarette. Um, 750,000 cases worldwide. That's 4% of all new cancer patients in the world got cancer, not because they smoked too many cigarettes, not because they worked in a coal mine or they were exposed to asbestos. It's because they had more than two drinks. And that's two glasses of wine. In the hard liquor world, that's just a couple of ounces with a lot of ice and whatever. Two drinks a day, seven days a week, will really pile it up. Now, there were 100,000 cases of people who averaged less than that, but the only thing they could trace it to is the fact, as Dr. David O'Dell, an oncologist at Northwestern Medicine, said, alcohol is an irritant, so it irritates the lining of the mouth, which irritates the throat, which irritates the stomach, and then as your body tries to heal all that at the same time, sometimes it does it in a rather abnormal way. Remember, cancer is a mass of white blood tissue, etc., that's going in to stop some kind of infection, and so you might wind up developing cancer because your body thinks it's trying to heal something else. It thinks it's being attacked. Now, it's interesting. There is an estimate. People were wondering, um, is it the pandemic that's related? Because alcohol consumption spiked in 2020. 
there was a 30% increase in the number of people who had alcohol-related issues, uh, medical overdoses with pills and prescription meds, and of course, the suicide attempt rate went way up in the first year. Uh, a recent study that is linked here in the article that we'll put up at the thebottomlineshow.com says that of the people who were surveyed about their drinking habits during the pandemic, two-thirds of them said that they started drinking more alcohol during that pandemic. And I've seen that happen. Counseled people who've experienced that. I'm a teetotaler, so <laughs> that was never a temptation for me. I'm a lousy drinker. So God took that uh, that temptation away from me at a very young age, and I'm very grateful that he did. But I know a lot of people have struggled with that. It's interesting because the the report is taking a look at the trajectory here, and this actually has increased between the number of people who have cancer and the people who have been drinking, and that's really the only way that they can tell that they got it. That's been going on for the past decade. So let's watch this report again next year and in five years and see if the increase in pandemic drinking has led to an increase in people getting cancer. So what can we make of this? First and foremost, ask people why they're drinking so much alcohol. I mean, scripture's clear. A little bit of alcohol every now and again is good for your system. There's a good chance that you took some cold medication when you had the flu or whatever that was kind of alcohol-related in terms of helping you get some sleep. There's nothing wrong with that when it's medically supervised. The question is, where do you drink? Do you drink by yourself? How much do you drink? Are you like that guy I was telling you about who used to pour one drink, as he put it, and then just keep filling it up to where he was going through two-fifths of gin every week? I mean, that's, that's a lot of gin. But this all goes back to the issue we were talking about in hour number one, about prayer, about our communication with God, and asking God strategically, Lord, will you show me the people for whom you want me to pray and to reach out to? And maybe an exhortation that's been on my heart for a while for pastors and for church leaders too. Most churches I am aware of have some kind of congregational prayer every service where you pray for the people you know who are sick, who are ill, this, that, and the other thing. And there are praise reports for people who get well and we get all excited when people come to faith. But how many of us as a congregation or as congregations are praying for the people we know And instead of saying, I pray that so-and-so kicks his addiction to alcohol, it's I pray that so-and-so finds Jesus, that we can be instrumental. Holy Spirit, give him the gift, give her the gift of faith so that they could receive the gift of salvation. Maybe we need a hit list of sorts for people for whom we can pray, people who desperately need the good news of the gospel because cancer will eventually kill your physical body, but sin will kill your eternal soul if it's not dealt with. And there is a cure for sin. That's the bottom line.